this is Professor Allen. And before we get to this episode, I wanted to take just a few minutes to thank people who are helpful in getting this podcast and the Relatively Geeky Network off the ground. For now, thank yous go out to Daniel J. Lewis and the Facebook podcast community for general help and encouragement, Paul the Book Guy Alves and Billy Hogan for leaving our first two iTunes reviews in two separate countries, no less, Billy Hogan, Sean Engel, and Michael Bradley for specific technical help and troubleshooting. Most of those same people, and also Charlie Niemeyer, Steve Lacey, and Andy Leyland, and Tom Harris for playing promos from this show and or Uncovering the Bronze Age. Just to clarify, the above-mentioned people represent the following podcasts. The Audacity to Podcast, The Book Guys Show, The Superman Fan Podcast, Just One of the Guys, The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Charlie's Geek Cast, Superman in the Bronze Age, 20-Minute Long Box, The Fantastic Cast, Hey Kids Comics, and Radio Free Asgard. Check out any or all of those shows if you have not yet done so. Feedback information for contacting me is at the very end of every episode, but I will repeat some of it here and encourage you to communicate with us. Email is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com, and an iTunes rating or review would be greatly appreciated. Thanks again. And after this promo, we'll be right back with the actual episode. Death must come to us all. If you're lucky, it will come for you quietly in the dead of night. If you're like the people filling the pages of the horror anthology Dead Ends, it will take the most unpleasant forms. Vengeful ghosts, hungry shadows, bloodthirsty demons, alien life forms, and disease-crazed psychopaths await you between its bullet-riddled covers. Pray that these stories by award-winning authors and visionaries in the horror genre will only terrify you. Buy it now at Amazon and Smashwords, and make sure that you read it with the lights on, secure in the knowledge that your money will go to charity, even as you question what it was that just tapped on your window or scratched at your door. This is Professor Allen. And welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select eh, pretty much at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this fifth episode of the Quarter Bin... I'm looking at Rom Space Knight number 46, published by Marvel Comics way back in September 1983. Rom number 46 had a cover price of 60 cents, meaning I acquired this copy for a reasonable enough 58% discount. The story, Beastiary, complete with exclamation point, was written by Bill Mantlo, with art by Sal Bushima and Aiken and Garvey. The issue starts in the sepulchral silence of a bleak Soviet landscape. Those are Mantlo's words, by the way, not mine. In the snow-swept desolation, Rom and Starshine are in full battle mode along with the Soviet super-soldiers. As a point of information, Starshine is a former human lady person named Brandy, and the Soviet super-soldiers, at this point, 
are Vanguard, Darkstar, and Major Ursus. They are under attack by vicious hounds, under the whip of men who appear to be Russian soldiers. But Major Ursus, the werewolf bear, werebear, carebear, werebear, has inferred the truth. The dog drivers are not Russian soldiers, Darkstar. They're not even human. The drivers are in fact dire wraiths, Rom's mortal enemies. And as always, he is ready to send them straight to limbo. Rom's neutralizer sings its slaying song, and the first hellhound is blasted from the skies. While Rom and his robot squeeze Starshine battle the wraiths, hopelessly outnumbered, the Soviet super soldiers weigh their options. They came to the Forbidden Zone in Kistim to safeguard a secret base from enemies of the state. But it appears that they have been deceived. Darkstar proclaims, And the garrison of that base is not even human. Major Ursus adds, The Space Knight speaks the truth, comrades. He turns into a giant bear and joins the fracas. He kills one of the drivers, and it turns to its true alien form. His comrades try to make sense of this. They wonder why they were sent by the KGB to protect an alien? Vanguard flings his hammer and sickle at a hellhound. Yes, you heard that right. Vanguard's weapons are a hammer and a sickle. He says, Remember, these aliens are shapeshifters. Perhaps it is both we and the state who have been deceived. Rom continues his fight, happy to have the Russians on his side. The mutant super soldiers have at last learned the truth. They stand with Starshine and me against the common foe. Working together, they make fast work of the hellhounds. We get a terrific splash page, with Rom at the center, blasting an enemy, but the four heroes also get in their licks pretty good. The single text box says it all. In short, an alliance has been formed this day between super soldiers and space knights to sweep Wraithkind's villainy from the snow-swept Soviet steppes. Rom's analyzer confirms what they had all suspected. The drivers are indeed dire wraiths, and they are quickly disposed of. Starshine and Rom share an emotional moment as the action prepares to move inside the secret citadel nestled deep in our beloved Russia. Inside they find the Gremlin, a deformed genius who had been running the secret lab, whose purpose Major Ursus has discovered. Monsters whip the men, alien overlords enslaving our fellow Russians to bring something forth from a huge, hellish pit. It turns out that the gremlin had previously saved Rom's life, and it asked in return that Rom aid him in eradicating those true enemies, not just of Russia, but of the entire world. They breach the walls, and what they find is not pretty. By the Great October Revolution, we are too late! Too late to save those who've slaved here. Perhaps too late to save Mother Russia herself. All of the humans around the roiling pit are dead. But from the pit, from its steaming center, something rises. And then we get two terrific side-by-side pages. The left page is cut into two quarter panels at the top and a half panel at the bottom, and the right is a full-page spread. So we have progressive panels, each one larger than the prior, each with more and more coming from the pit. This is great visual storytelling. And what we get from each progressive panel is more and more reanimated dinosaurs climbing from the pit. That's right, freaking reanimated dinosaurs. Score! 
Rom flies into a huge woolly mammoth. Wraith science and sorcery have created many monsters, but never any so awesome as these. But Starshine knows the truth. That's because these aren't wraith-created, Rom. These are prehistoric mammals, creatures that roamed the Earth in ages past. Vanguard reflects that as a boy, you read many books about creatures as these. I never thought that as a man I would be forced to fight them. As valiantly as our newly forged alliance fights, the sheer numbers put them at a huge disadvantage. The wraiths revel in their coming victory. Together, our science and magic will succeed in slaying the space knights and their earth allies. Which does constitute counting their chickens before they've hatched, and since they're villains, this probably won't work out for them. But it does look bad for our heroes. More monsters, long slumbering, rise from the permafrost pit. But suddenly, all of the animals collapse and begin to decompose. But although Rom had raised his weapon, he had never actually fired his neutralizer. The wraiths panic. The Securosphere is faltering. How? Then from above like a deus, on a machina of some kind, Gremlin appears. He used his super mutant mind powers to figure out how to shut down the wraith device. The wraiths turn to fire upon the interloper, but they have to turn their backs on our five allies to do so. And that is their last mistake. Limbo claims some, and death claims the rest. Kisteem is cleansed of dire wraiths, Ramen tones, his weapon still smoking. The gremlin convinces the Soviet super soldiers to use the still-secret complex as their home base, and a D-list hero team is formed. Flying away from the newly minted super team, Starshine asks Rom where they will head off to next. Wherever Wraithkind's evil threatens Brandy, wherever Earth is endangered, there soar the Space Knights. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like Ready to Form Voltron? Or maybe How about I am Batman? Or This is a job for Superman. Do you remember Power Rangers? Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots Transform! (laughs) Or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello, I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's Geekcast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's Geekcast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully... And we're back. The greatest of the Space Knights, Rom, began life as a toy in 1979. It was made for Parker Brothers and was that company's first non-board game product. 
As part of their marketing efforts, Parker Brothers licensed the toy to Marvel Comics. We'll get back to the licensing thing later. And issue number one was released in December of that same year, 1979. The toy was a flop, abandoned by Parker Brothers quickly, long before the comic ended its run after issue 75. The six-year run also included four annuals. At one point in time, I owned all 79 issues of ROM and sold them about 15 years ago in preparation for moving to my current professorial job. But thanks to the quarter bins, I've accumulated about 80% of the run. What books make it into a comic shop's quarter bin is a matter of supply and demand. What books I take out of the quarter bin is a matter of my personal taste. Those factors have led to my personal quarter bin database being almost totally from the 80s and 90s. Next time I visit the quarter bins, I really need to expand that, specifically looking for some books from, I don't know, this millennium? Or, if I'm lucky, from the 70s, just to have a greater variety of books for the show. That being said, this is the fourth book from the 80s I've looked at in just five episodes of the Quarter Bin Podcast. And this one certainly bears some markings of being a Marvel book from 1983. That is to say, it's kind of wordy. But don't misunderstand that. That's not a bad thing. I acknowledge that I'm biased here. My sweet spot of reading comics is the late 70s to the early 90s. That's when I was most involved in actively buying and reading new issues, and when my collection was near its peak quantity. Trying to be objective, I like the measure of wordiness inherent in issues from this era. This is not the overly dense writing of the Golden or Early Silver Ages, nor is it the uber decompressed writing style of some modern comics. You know, those $4 new issues that you can read in four minutes? No, Mantlow's writing in this issue is full enough, robust enough, that I felt that the time I spent reading the issue was well worth it but I rarely felt that it was unnecessarily bogging me down, slowing down the action. And boy, is there a lot of action here. We spent almost 11 pages fighting in the Soviet snowscape. And then after little more than a page of downtime and exposition, we have nine more pages fighting inside the base, and then a one-page denouement. Stylistically, there are a lot of caption boxes used. Probably half of the individual panels have a description of some kind, but only a few times does the combination of panel captions or dialogue boxes crowd out the action. In older books, there were times when half a panel might be covered with words of some kind, and you don't get anything like that here. I tried to include as much of Mantlow's words in the synopsis as I could. That's because the writing is terrific. The story is a bit out there, with disillusioned Soviet heroes and hellhounds and, did I mention, reanimated prehistoric beasties. But the crisp writing, the great word choices, the language used, just pulled me right along. The potential problem with a wordy comic is that it can sometimes slow down the action, but that is definitely not the case here. This is obviously a continuation from a prior issue, but I was never lost. Through the dialogue and an occasional caption box, it was clear who was who, what side everyone was on, what was going on in key steam, etc. By the third page, which is all part of that first long fight sequence, I was totally brought up to speed on the story so far. 
point of fact. Kistim is a real Russian city, and in 1957 was the site of a radiation contamination incident. As a result, the city and many nearby was evacuated. The area is reportedly at safe levels of contamination and radiation today, but it's also still a restricted area. So there is a basis in truth for the plot point of the abandoned nature of that area, and I greatly appreciate this attempted verisimilitude. Marvel comics are supposed to take place in our world, and the best writers take advantage of that fact by weaving in some real-world history. Rom was part of the Marvel Universe, but on the fringes. It was a tenuous connection. Two early issues featured the X-Men. Don't hold your breath to hear me talk about them in the Quarterbin podcast. Those books cost way more than 25 cents now. But Rom's interactions with the greater Marvel Universe tended to more resemble this story, with maybe some lesser-known characters. The Soviet super-soldiers had previously appeared in some Iron Man and Incredible Hulk issues, and in 1992, they actually got their own 64-page super-special. I do need to talk about the presence of the Russian characters. Remember the historical context of 1983. The Cold War was at its height. Ronald Reagan had in his sights the bringing down of what he called the Evil Empire, language that Soviet Premier Yuri Andropov did not appreciate. This was published three years after the U.S. boycott of the Moscow Olympics because of the USSR's recent invasion of Afghanistan. And this was one year before the Russian retaliatory boycott of the Los Angeles Olympics. To say the least, international tensions were elevated. Mantlow's writing of the Russian characters is interesting. They're full of what I think of as stereotypical Russia-speak from Mother Russia to Lenin's beard to by the October Revolution. There is a delicate balance here, I suppose, from a sociological perspective or from political correctness or sensitivity. I suppose it was a bold move to include Russians in sort of a positive light in this era. And there's some credit to be given to Mantlow to Marvel for doing this, for being internationally diverse. But then again, they speak in what appear to be Russian stereotyped phrases. I consider myself a traditionally patriotic American. But I don't go around exclaiming, Great George Washington's ghost! Or by Lincoln's stovepipe hat! So, are these attempts to oversimplify these Russian characters actually a move towards diversity? Or was it subtly making fun of them? I can't quite put myself back in the mindset of reading these in 1983. That was a long time ago. So, I don't know quite what to make of that. As I said before, I collected ROM way back in the day, and I recognize that there's a risk in recollecting and then rereading books that one had previously owned and previously read and previously really enjoyed. You know, there's something tempting about just letting good memories stay as they are and not take the risk of revisiting a story first encountered two, in this case three decades ago. But I've got to say, this is a great comic book. I had a blast reading this. Like I said, there are a bunch of ROMs in the Quarterbin database, and I'm really looking forward to the next time one of these pops up in the randomizer. I'm not going to talk about ads in the issues very often as some other podcasters do, but there's one worth mentioning. This issue came out the same month as US1 number 5 which was recently covered by Sean Engel and Jay Ferguson in Episode 3 of the Just One of Them There Guys podcast. 
meaning the books had the exact same ads. So I'm merely echoing their praise for the bullpen bulletins page, which is a John Byrne drawing of John Byrne at his drawing table, surrounded by every significant Marvel Comics character. It is a very nice full-page drawing. I'm also not going to talk about the reprint information very often, as some other podcasters do. But it is worth talking about in terms of ROM, because the nature of the relationship between Parker Brothers and Marvel is such, the corporate acquisitions and spinoffs and bankruptcies that have occurred in the three decades since this was published, and the upshot is this. The ownership of the character of Rom and the comics featuring him is very muddled. And that confusion as to who exactly has the rights to what has kept this title from ever being reprinted or revived. And there is little chance that it ever will, at least anytime soon. The verdict on Rom Space Knight number 46 definitely worth 25 cents, an absolute quarter bin bargain. This is a legitimately really good comic. That wraps up my coverage of ROM number 46, bringing episode 5 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close. In episode 6, we'll jump into the future and read about a character from the past. Clean your six-shooter, because I'll be covering Hex number 1 from, of course, 1985. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.